welcome to the ESG Matters podcast. My name is Amat Gomis and I'm your host. Today we have Richard Blundell, a global sustainability and innovation leader with over 40 years of executive management experience in the technology sector. Richard led the Clean Tech Venture Services Group, the largest tech hub in Canada, comprising over 250 startups focused on sustainability. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm delighted to, I'm super grateful for your invitation and delighted to, to spend time with you. Uh, thank you so much. And just to start off, can you give a bit about your background and, and your work that you've done? Sure. Yeah. I've sort of, I mean, essentially done two things in my life. I've led global businesses for multinationals in Europe and Asia. All of those businesses were environmental technology or services business dating back into the 90s. And the other thing I've done is I've held senior founder roles in several clean tech startups in the US, Europe, and Asia. So I've kind of gone back and forth between being in large businesses and then leaving and doing something smaller or startup related. And um, and I've been in this sustainability space kind of all my life. I, I was at Rio in 1992, the first Earth Summit, which was the really the first time we had a global discussion on this issue. And I do some, you know, I'm, I'm an advisor to the Prince of Wales Accounting for Sustainability Charity, the Canadian Centre for Regenerative Agriculture, and I also an advisor to the Danish government on education. And I also teach. So I teach at the University of Toronto's business school called the Rotman School of Management, and I'm a guest lecturer in other schools as well. But what I really do, and, and I'm sorry this is taking f- so long, as I work with startup founders and growth company leaders to help them employ sustainability as a source of innovation to drive new growth. That's really what I do. Thank you for that, that understanding and that grounding of, of who you are and what you've done. I guess one question I have to start off is, you know, oftentimes we're seeing more companies create ESG goals and governments getting involved, like you said, with the first Earth Day. And with that, there's creating more ESG-related regulations and laws we're seeing that come out of COP27 and and different programs like that. And this creates a need. Can you explain what you see as a business opportunity for entrepreneurs in this space, especially given your background, working with startups and being a co-founder? Like, What do you see as sort of the opportunity landscape for companies or for people who want to do something in sustainability, given the time period we're living in? Well, that's a great question, Emmett. So I think the reality is that climate change is the single largest commercial opportunity of our time. I don't think there's anything larger than this. It's absolutely enormous. So I thought I would give you a little bit, some statistics to help you sort of see how large this is. So if you look at just what the International Energy Agency predicts in terms of renewable energy investments between now and 2050, they're predicting a marketplace that's going to be equal to $100 trillion in value. If you look at what's happening with the EU, so Deal Room recently released some figures that said that the ecosystem, the climate technology ecosystem in Europe, in the EU, is worth over $100 trillion in 2020 is expected to double in the next few years. And the list goes on and on and on. And you you in the US have just, you know, with the Inflation Reduction Act, the Biden government has essentially released funding that's equivalent to $370 billion of climate and clean energy related funding, you know, funding being distributed by inefficient administrative legislators. This is now consumer-based incentive funding, so tax credits mostly. And Credit Suisse recently, like in September, 
did a study that says that interesting thing about the Inflation Reduction Act is that it's not a bunch of inefficient, you know, sort of legislators that are distributing funding. This is now all been earmarked for uh, tax credits. So it's in our hands, it's in consumer hands. And that's the best type of incentives there are, because it's actually money that's going to go to customers to create markets at scale. And the 370 billion Credit Suisse estimates is actually going to be the the total spend for the U.S. government. They think is going to be closer to 800 billion because the incentives are just so pervasive, rich, and and meaningful for for business. And if you take a look at what the entire impact will have on the U.S. economy, they're saying that roughly a 1.7 trillion dollar spending impact on the U.S. economy. So it's it's absolutely enormous the opportunity. And pivoting a little bit from that, you talked about sort of what this means for entrepreneurs, for people who are establishing new opportunities to capitalize on the funding that's being out there and, and the incentives that are being created. Well, I think what about opportunities for established businesses to pivot or to incorporate ESG into their business models? Do you have any examples of how this occurred that you find interesting or emblematic of what you expect to see in the future? Yeah, I mean, again, another great question. I mean, there's there's so many examples. And again, UBS, I think, did a study several years ago that actually looked at over 2,500 studies of financial performance on companies. And this is going back into the, into the late 80s and early 90s that looked at the, the performance of companies that had, that had embedded sustainability and purpose into their business model. And all of those companies uh, outperformed others on public markets and as well as had lower costs of capital and debt. But the examples I want to share, I mean, the, the one that for me that resonates the most is the story of Interface. Ray Anderson was the CEO of a, of a commercial tile company. He was asked by a customer, a large customer, what they were doing around sustainability I don't even think he knew what that meant. He had no idea. Went back and took a look at his business and realized that most of his inputs were actually petroleum-based inputs, whether it was energy or product-related inputs, and then completely revamped his company, created a very aggressive sustainability strategy, which he called Mount Sustainability. It had seven different levels of performance or achievement, the last one being the, the redesign of commerce. And they've blown past that actually quite some time ago, more than a decade ago, and have redesigned another, uh, created another set of milestones for themselves around sustainability. But the net net is that the outcomes that have been generated by Interface, another one is Unilever with the sustainable living strategy, is that those strategies are so bold and so exciting that they actually energize the organization. And so Paul Pullman at Unilever at the time of announcing his sustainable living strategy, which was, you know, had a, a one goal of taking, of actually making the lives of a billion people better. I mean, that's a pretty lofty purpose that that is extremely exciting. So when you're going to work for a company like Unilever or Interface, and you have those kinds of very aggressive sort of visions, it drives energy, excitement, purpose in the organization, and, and you get more out of people. He, Paul would have said that it makes a, a good organization great because you're getting that extra mile out of people. But the other things that happen are, you know, if you've got lower costs, you've got better innovation, better products, 
You have better relationships with customers. You have better relationships with employees. Employees, you know, stay around. They don't leave. They they stay longer. They have better relationships with suppliers, and all of that manifests in making more money, better profits, but not at the expense of future generations or the earth. I think you hit on a really interesting concept that so many business leaders and people who are involved in ESG overlook, especially when you work in a large organization, is the fact that companies and people thrive when there's where there's innovation. And leveraging ESG as a means to understand, create, and be sort of that 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 hotbed of ideas and, and creativity that really has a lot of value for the organization. It provides a, a clarifying point. Oftentimes, people throughout the organization may not understand what the five, 10-year goal is, but they can understand some of the more sustainability-related targets, whether it be a decrease in carbon, what does that mean, and improves environment. People like to breathe clean air. Very simple, very easy to understand. When it comes to diversity, having a more diverse workforce actually improves the the quality of the output because you're getting people from various walks of life, providing interesting and new concepts and ideas in ways that you wouldn't have found otherwise. So I think to your point, if companies look at this ESG from a business model perspective and say, how can we shift our business model to incorporate ESG as a means of leveraging it as an innovation specter, as opposed to we are just doing this because our clients care about this and we want to be responsive to our clients. That really gets to, I think, and you can speak to this more, sort of why people are, so many people were driven to work at technology startups and technology firms is because there's an intellectual curiosity that's there. And there's an opportunity to really tackle and do something that people feel good about. And there, and it's a very intangible sort of product that people can put their hands on, but I think it's so important. So I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on that as well. I mean, you, I mean, it's hard for me to say it better than what, what you've just said, Emmett. I mean, that's exactly the way to think about it. And it's this notion of knowing what you're working towards, what you're working for. You know, Simon Sinek would say, it's about knowing your why. You know, people don't buy what you do or how you do it. They buy why you do it. So if you're in an organization that has, and and I'll read these because I think it's a really interesting quote from Ray Anderson, who is the former CEO of Interface. And I, I think one of the most sustainable companies in the world, and certainly one that went on a journey well before most other companies did. And one that people mimic today, you know, they, because it was, it's such a great success story. But what he said is one of the things that is really clear is you unleash the creativity of an organization when you hold up a vision that is so outrageous, it takes the breath away. When the vision is that ambitious, it has taken us places where we never would have dreamed of. So it's like, it's just what you said. When you create that kind of a purpose in an organization, you energize the people. And one of the outcomes is this ability to be more creative. And and as you say, and you're so correct, diversity is extremely important in your ability to innovate because it brings in different cultural views different you know views of the world it adds to diversity of thought and it creates an environment where and as steve jobs would say best ideas should win that's what leadership is all about the best ideas should win and so when you have organization that is built on purpose where 
diversity, inclusion, and equity is extremely, you know, is embedded in the in the governance of a business. The outcomes are clear. They're just so much better. And one of those is innovation and and better products and obviously better morale. And and if you look at the statistics today, Amanth, of of you know, the workforce is made up of today, the majority of the workforce is made up of millennials and Gen Z or Gen Z for the Canadian in me. And those people actually care about this topic. They care about diversity. They care about the planet. They care about their futures and the natural world, which is super important. And so the other thing that's happening with that generation is they're going to witness the largest transfer of wealth ever on the planet, which is a $59 trillion transfer of wealth from my generation to this next generation in the next 20 to 25 years. And the good news is that these people actually care about these issues. So if you're a company today and you're selling into that, you know, the majority of the workforce globally, and these are the issues that they care about, you better be addressing those needs for them in the products and services that you provide. And it creates just better organizations from the inside as well. And you bring up a good point I want to talk about when you think about the global workforce. A lot of the global workforce that we see today, a lot of the innovation and a lot of the technologies coming from, I would say, Western Europe and North America, that's shifting to China as well. Mm-hmm. But we know in the next 50, 60, 100 years that a lot of countries that we would consider developing economies will be the great generators of human capital and just they are the places where people are being born. For instance, with like Nigeria, with Kenya, a lot of places in Sub-Saharan Africa, there's a high birth rate. So when we think about how that plays a part with the global workforce, we also have to think about that when we think about things like COP27 and that there was a focus there on creating a more equity as it relates to the responses all countries are going to have to provide in order to address climate change. But oftentimes those in those countries are often bearing the brunt of it more so than people in the United States and Canada and other places. So do you have, if you were to either be an entrepreneur in one of those uh, developing economies, looking in the next long-term Uh, 10, 20, 30 years from now, and then also if you were a government official, what types of ESG innovation would you look for? Would you create, or how would you create an environment in which you could decrease your carbon footprint, but also improve the financial well-being of citizens in that country as well? I mean, you know, another really good question and not an easy, I mean, I, you know, I don't think there's a silver bullet answer just as there is no silver bullet technology to the climate crisis. But I think, you know, COP27, you saw a very good and meaningful outcome because as you said, and rightly so, the reality is that the developing world is bearing the brunt of the effects of climate change. And they're not the ones that are producing the problem. I mean, that they're the, the least culpable. But they have, I think, and I've been a big believer in Africa for a very long time. And I, I was just talking to some people last week in Africa about their plans to build a an education platform to actually educate young African sort of kids how to get access to the skills that are going to need, that are going to make them successful in a, in a digital world, in a climate-driven 
world. And I think it's a great idea because you know, there's a need for those resources to come from outside of just the, the wealthy north. If there's going to be a transition in the south and the southern economies, that transition has to happen with people there. And I think education is a very important part of that. If I was advising a government, I would say to them, you need to build your future on clean growth. And I think clean growth delivers, as we've talked about, these enhanced outcomes around employment, around quality of jobs, around number of jobs. If you look at the oil and gas industry today versus sort of renewable energy, renewable energy employs three to four times more people than oil and gas industry does, and they are better paid jobs and higher quality jobs. But I would say to them, and these businesses, you know, these clean growth businesses are more resource efficient, which means that they're going to be better at managing uh, resources that are vulnerable today, ones that are not renewable, which we have to be careful about. And I think it is so that leads to lower costs and, and better profits. But I also think we've got it. I would say to, to, to them that you need to be thinking about circular economy as a part of that guidance, you know, so that you're trying to make sure that all the resources uh, in a process, in a value chain, whether they're input or output, are being held at their highest utility throughout the entire course of their useful life. And, and I think that's that those circular economies have proven to be very profitable. And then I would say on the legislative side, which I know you wanted me to talk a little bit about, is that it's important to create legislation that is going to mimic a little bit like what the U.S. has done with the Inflation Reduction Act, which is going to be to encourage adoption rather than try to put legislation in place that is only around compliance. So it's the stick. I think the carrot is more meaningful. So if you can create legislation around incentives, tax credits, and those sorts of things where consumers actually are the ones that drive growth, I think that's really important because the one thing that that is going to matter, the, I think, the most in transferring wealth from the north to the south, if you like, is going to be eliminating the green premium. And the only way to eliminate the green premium, so the premium that costs, you know, with clean technologies, we, we don't have that today so much in the ener- energy space because solar and wind now is is actually cheaper than, than oil and gas in, in most jurisdictions. But it, 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 to, to eliminate the green premium, you've got to actually deliver scale. And the only way to deliver scale is to create incentives for for adoption. And I also think it's important to create a, a legislation that is forward-looking so that you're creating a level playing field. So you don't want legislation that is not kind of prescriptive and definitive so that people are guessing all the time because there's ways to work around it or loopholes Because when you have leaky legislation like that, it doesn't create any sort of certainty in the marketplace. It it creates a lot of skepticism. People don't really know what the future is going to look like. So you want to create legislation that is forward-looking, that that allows for for people to to make long-term decisions with predictable outcomes. But I think the real, the really important barrier that needs to be overcome here is is really getting is eliminating the green premium and i would lastly say learn from the west like we've made all the mistakes right we've polluted the world to no end we've made all the mistakes with a carbon-based economy there's an opportunity for you to start with a clean slate 
to deliver much better environmental, social, and economic outcomes and to do it in a clean manner. But I think the only pushback I would have there would be that one thing that we've, we have here is that we were able to create a problem and create solutions based on our own context and assumptions. Whereas I think sometimes for, for people in those certain generations and certain locations, they're going to have to develop their basic level of assumptions and what, what does that mean? I don't think a lot of times their voices are heard on an international stage as much as they should be, to your point, because they are the ones who are bearing a lot of the impact. And I think until people there can say, this is what we want and why, that's probably going to be the, the most important factor because here we have so much consumer data, so much market research about what the consumer wants, what what they care about, what they don't care about, what they say they care about, what they're willing to pay for. Whereas I don't know if they have that, that as far as when it comes to the green premium per se, I think that there some places are much more tuned to it because they understand they're seeing, they feel the impact more so than others. But I think that other places, they may need to have that type of honest and interesting dialogue, right? Because they may have solutions that are very much location-based, that speak to the cultural backgrounds, that speak to the ways in which they organize labor in ways that we typically don't, that may be very successful, or even if it's not necessarily very successful, just successful as something we would implement here. So I, I think that's my only pushback there. I think I'm quite curious to understand and to learn more about what other places are doing to address this issue, whether it be in other developed economies or in uh, developing economies, because there's so many ways to address this issue. And I think the most important thing is that people start and people organize and people start the process as opposed to spending too much time pontificating various ways to get it accomplished. This has been a really good conversation. And I'm curious for folks who want to get a hold of you, Richard, and understand and maybe have more conversations and learn from you. Where can people find out more information about your work and how can they reach out to you? So thanks, Samantha. I, but, and I would agree with everything that you said as a way to close this. And I think the reality is that at COP27, the fact that a third of Pakistan was underwater, unfortunately, was a colossal warning or wake-up call for the rest of the world to actually listen to that those people and, the, and their voices in that dialogue. And I, and I agree that that needs to happen more often. And, and the West needs to be very much culpable around, you know, financing this transition. They're absolutely important to actually deliver these these outcomes for, for that transition to take place from a financing standpoint. You can reach me on LinkedIn. My last name is Blundell, B-L-U-N-D-E-L-L. You can reach me through School of, of Management at uh, the Rotman School of Management at, at the University of Toronto. And you can reach me on my website, which is the sustainabilityleader.com. Well, thank you so much, Richard, for being a guest on the ESG Matters podcast. I know I learned a lot and I'm sure my listeners have as well. It's my pleasure. I learned a lot as well, Emma. Thanks for the great questions.